Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 20, Exodus chapter 20, the third continuation. As we move forward in our study of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you know, we finally move past the more controversial parts and we finally get into areas that are a little bit more comfortable, so I think you can kind of relax today. Let's uh, turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, where we continue in our study of the Ten Commandments, and let's look at the fifth word, Exodus 20, verse 12, and it says, Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land which Adonai is giving you. Now, basically the fifth word enjoins children to show proper respect and to give proper care to their parents. It also gives us the reason we should be obedient to this principle, that our days in the land may be prolonged. Now, depending on your translation, you may say, well, that is really Jewish, because God is obviously referring to the land of Israel when he says land. And, and certainly, this is one aspect of the meaning, but as we're now hopefully coming to understand that even though Jehovah gave these principles in the covenant of Moses to Israel, these principles aren't just for Israel. In, in reality, they're oh, about how the universe that God created is intended to operate. To sharpen that point just a little bit more, these are the principles. The Ten Commandments are the principles by which redeemed humans are to live. Right? Let us never forget that Israel was by God's choice, by his grace, to be the receiver and keeper of God's word for all mankind, not just for themselves. Well, the word used here in verse 12 of Exodus 20 for land in Hebrew is Adamah. And yes, it is related to the name of that first created man, Adam. Right? And most often, Adamah simply means Earth, dirt, soil, the ground. But it can also mean earth like in our overall planet. Sometimes it has been translated into English words like country or land as in the use the land of Canaan. But that really gives us the wrong impression of the meaning of the word Adamah. For instance, when the Bible tells us that Moses was standing on holy ground, in Hebrew, he was standing on Kodesh Adamah, holy ground, holy Adamah. The idea is that generally Adamah is not to be taken as a reference to, say, a specific region or a, a country. And often we'll see Israelites in the Bible refer to the land of Israel as just the land, but an entirely different Hebrew word is used when that's done. It is Eretz, E-R-E-T-Z, Eretz. What I'm trying to demonstrate is that the Lord is saying that we will receive the blessing of a longer and more abundant life on earth by treating our parents with the love and respect and care that God expects of us. In fact, this is our duty. Now, part of the reason for this principle is the centrality of family and the Lord's plan for mankind. Family stability is maintained 
by the proper observance of the authority structure that God set up for families with the parents at the top of that hierarchy. You know, the violation of this command brings family disintegration. And the violation of this command, when it becomes a society norm, brings national disintegration. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 22, Ezekiel blames the breakdown of the family is one of the prime reasons that the Lord allowed Judah to be exiled to Babylon. Let's move on now uh, and read Exodus 20, verse 13. The words are short and simple. Do not murder. Now, your Bible may say, do not kill. And we need to talk about that a little bit. Indeed, the sixth word is a prohibition against the killing of human beings. But to understand the rather narrow sense that this particular commandment is to be taken, the proper word here is murder. The commandment is not about the general sense of killing. In Hebrew, the word used here is ratsach, R-A-T-S-A-C-H, ratsach. And it refers to an unjust killing and only an unjust killing. Whether that killing was intentional or unintentional, it does not mean to execute, as in carrying out a completely lawful judicial sentence. It does not mean to kill an enemy in battle or to kill an intruder in defense of yourself or your home. Murder is a very good translation for the word ratsak. And the way the Western world of today thinks of murder or manslaughter is exactly as this verse intended. Now the next question is exactly what is just versus unjust killing of a human being? Well, that's one of the many topics that Jehovah is going to explain beginning in chapter 21, the next chapter we'll study, in the, in the regulations and the ordinances that will follow, what is commonly referred to as the law. We'll get into that um, starting next week. Here's the thing about murder. God says that only he has the right to take a human life. But the Torah specifically gives human government the task of determining the guilt or innocence of a person accused of this crime. And he delegates the task of extracting the blood penalty for doing this for being the murderer. And Genesis 9 sets up this dynamic as concerns the Lord's rationale for capital punish, punishment in the first place. He says, the Lord says in Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall the guilty party's blood be shed. Why is the unjust killing of a human so serious? Again, we're told in Genesis 9, in God's image did God make man. Man is derived from God, so for a man to be killed is very serious. And God's justice requires the ultimate penalty for this terrible crime. Now, what is so ironic is that as history moves along, mankind thinks of himself as having become more civilized and humane. And so societies have now abolished the death penalty. Now this is a direct rebellion against God's laws and principles and in fact by not taking the life of the murderer according to the Lord's justice system 
human life is cheapened. Let me make something clear. The Bible nowhere gives man latitude to commute a murderer's death sentence. But this practice of commuting death sentences to imprisonment, or in some cases even the payment of ransom to the victim's family, or abolishing capital punishment altogether is not really a modern phenomenon as one might think. During the second temple period, that, that is that same time that Yeshua was alive, imposition of the death penalty by the Jewish religious high court, the Sanhedrin, was rare. It is popular, let's say, in Kurdish circles to, to say that it was because the Romans had taken away the right of the Jews to carry out executions that were, there were so few Jewish death penalties. But that's too simplistic. In reality, the records show that all the Jewish court had to do was to go to the, to the local Roman authority with their decision in a capital offense. The Roman governor would then review the case. And unless he had serious reservations about the verdict, and as we see with Jesus' execution, sometimes it didn't matter if he did have serious reservations, the Romans would go ahead and approve the execution and then even carry it out for the Jewish religious authorities. In other words, the Jews were absolutely able to order the death sentence. It's just that the Romans had to concur with the decision and be the agents to carry it out. Now, the Jews had for a long time decided that mercy was the better avenue. And often they commuted death sentences for murderers. In the Mishneh, Mishneh tractate Machot, we'll find a statement that the opinion of the Sanhedrin was that to hand down a death sentence even once every seven years was too much. A rabbi who commented on that statement, Rabbi Ben Azariah, says that once in even 70 years was too much. Rabbi Akiva turns around and says had he been on the Sanhedrin, he never would have allowed any death sentence under any circumstance. Rabbi Gamaliel responded to this rather perverted mindset that the Sanhedrin adopted um, that, that the view of those radical rabbis to never give out a death sentence would have amounted to innocent bloodshed in, in Israel increasing dramatically. And is that not what we've seen in the U.S. where the death penalty has been abolished in so many states and the legal system makes extracting it almost impossible in states where it's allowed? Bloodshed's not decreased by commuting death penalties. It's increased. Now, the Lord's principle is that to take the life of a murderer is actually to protect life, innocent life. Let's move on to the next word. Now, in my Bible, uh, and maybe yours, it is um, Exodus 20, verse 14. Don't worry if your Bible shows it is just a continuation of verse 13. We're going to see little variations in exactly how the verses are numbered. So, that next one is, do not commit adultery. The seventh word is, that a married person should not commit adultery. Now, while we're not going to go into this 
in depth, although maybe we should. I do want to talk about this commandment for a little bit because it sets up a God principle that most of us don't entirely grasp. The first thing to understand is that the entire concept of adultery, by definition, only occurs within the institution of marriage. Outside of marriage, adultery has no meaning. And marriage is not only an important element of God's plan for mankind, but it plays a significant role in God's relationship with mankind. Now, this whole concept of marriage is that a union occurs. As concerns human-to-human relationships, scripturally, this marriage union is between a man and a woman. And while we too often think of marriage as a physical or a sexual matter, or in our American society lately as a financial or a legal matter. In fact, the union God is talking about in the seventh commandment is primarily a spiritual union. Now certainly, in the present world, the physical aspects of marriage exist, and not the least of reason for it is being the propagation of the human race. But that's going to end in the not-too-distant future. So the reason I say this is that from Yehovah's perspective, the sin of adultery is much less about a husband or a wife having a physical sexual union outside of their marriage than it is about our spirits entering into an unauthorized union with another person. Now, God has authorized that a man and a woman before him may be joined in every level of union between themselves, but only between themselves. The only other kind of union allowed within that marriage is with God, through Christ. Now, one could argue that a kind of third union is permitted, I suppose, that between the married couple and the body of Christ, the the true church. But that union is not quite the same thing, which is why it's often spoken of in terms of unity, and not union. Now you've probably noticed that our union with Christ is often spoken of in the Bible using marriage terminology. And the use of that marriage terminology is not an analogy, it's not an illustration. It's absolutely real. It's literal. And that fact should also help us to be more aware of how we're to consider the essence of marriage from Jehovah's point of view and how we are to consider the nature of our relationship with Christ. I mean, just as an earthly marriage is a man and a woman coming into union with one another, salvation is our being in union with Christ. Now let me flesh that out just a little more. In the future, there's going to be a glorious marriage feast, often called the marriage feast of the Lamb, in which Christ's bride, the church, all of us, will enter into marriage with him. This tells us that even though we are immediately in union with Christ upon our acceptance of his lordship, that is, when when we get saved, we're not yet fully into a formal and completed marriage-like union with him. So our union and unity with Christ is going to someday become even more complete at the end of this present age than it is today. 
Now, I admit, at first that statement might sound like a like double talk. I mean, how can it be that we're kind of married but kind of not to Yeshua right now with the marriage becoming fully complete later? Now, that concept might bother us a little, but it would have made perfect sense to the Hebrews of Christ's day. Because just as today, in our era, when there is first typically an engagement to be married, a betrothal, an engagement, comes before the actual wedding ceremony. All right, It was that same way back then. But back then, betrothal carried with it a far more serious and tangible promise when the engagement occurred than it does now. I mean, as the situation arises, we'll study more in depth all the ceremonial aspects of Hebrew marriage, which are not just interesting, but really quite instructive. For now, just understand that at the moment of betrothal, a Hebrew man and a Hebrew woman were treated as though they were married. That is, the union, to a degree, began upon engagement. A ketubah, a, a, a legal marriage contract, was drawn up and agreed to, and it was immediately effective upon betrothal of the couple. And an engaged couple could not become unengaged without a formal legal divorce decree. It's not like it is for us today, to where we just make an agreement, and then we can unmake that agreement, the gal hands back her ring, maybe, all right, and it's all off. No. Further, in that era, unfaithfulness during the betrothal period was considered adultery. Prosecutable adultery. Upon betrothal, even the property of the woman was considered to belong to her fiancé, unless he renounced all the rights to it. All that remained after betrothal for the marriage to be 100% completed was the consummation of the marriage, physical union which occurred after the wedding ceremony and then after the wedding feast. So we who are Christ's are currently in a state of betrothal to him. We're in the marriage process. Right now, Christ is with us in spirit, so we're in union with him in spirit. But in the future, upon the marriage feast of the Lamb, he will be with us in person, and so we'll be in union with him in person. So even during our current earthly time of betrothal to Christ, for us to come into union with something that is forbidden, for us to come into a state of unfaithfulness to Christ, puts us in a state of adultery in our relationship to Christ in Jehovah's eyes. Well, the Greek word moikos, which is typically correctly translated as adultery, must be understood in its Old Testament Hebrew sense in order for us to really understand what God is telling us about adultery. When the Hebrews spoke of adultery, they meant faithlessness to your union partner. It didn't have to be an overt act of having sex with another to be considered adultery, although usually that is what occurred. What constituted adultery and the proper proofs and punishments for it changed quite a bit over time. During the time of the patriarchs, adultery required the wife to have had sex with another man. No proof 
other than the husband's suspicions, though, were needed. And he himself could put her to death by no other reason than he suspected something. The laws of Moses brought the requirement for the conviction of adultery to a minimum of two witnesses. And by the time of Christ, a lot of proof was needed. A court of law would actually rule on the matter, and death was actually still one of the possible range of punishments, but usually the result was public humiliation of some kind. Not long after Christ, the death penalty was removed. It was abolished for the sin of adultery because it had become so rampant that it was almost impossible to police. And the number of women that would have been executed was so huge as to make carrying out the death sentence virtually unthinkable. So, during all biblical times, what we find is that adultery was considered a purely female crime and sin. Men weren't subject to it. Of course, that isn't what the Bible says. That's what tradition had come to make out of it. Christ made it clear that that most certainly was not God's view of it, that it was a female crime. All right, And in Leviticus, we see that men and women were subject to the same consequences. Now, faithlessness of a woman to her union partner, her husband, in the form of fraternizing with another man, or taking another man's side even, in a disagreement against her husband, was at times considered adultery in Bible times. So adultery, as concerns God, carries with it this broad sense of one's faithlessness to Jehovah on a spiritual level, and it even includes the idea of drawing another person along with you into this faithlessness, because it does take two to tango, doesn't it? The thing is, there are certain unions that are available to mankind from which we are prohibited entering into, especially if we wish to also be in union with Christ. In other words, there are some unions that are simply mutually exclusive. The scriptures explain that in essence, what or who we are in union with defines how God sees us. So an obvious example would be that if we come into spiritual union with Satan, we could not also be in spiritual union with Christ. Those are two unions that are mutually exclusive. You have one or you have the other, but you don't have both. Okay. There are other forbidden unions, all of them destructive. And Paul provides a list of them in 1 Corinthians 6, but that's not our purpose for today, so we won't dissect each of those. The point is that our union with Christ is most similar to our union in human marriage from God's viewpoint. Therefore, for a believer to join into a forbidden union while in union with Christ, or for a husband or a wife to enter into a union outside of their marriage, the Bible will use the same term for both, adultery. We need to understand the serious nature of this particular sin in a much larger context than we, we have typically thought of it. Now, I'm sure... Some here might like to discuss a little more about the modern adultery aspects of divorce and remarriage. Some might really not want to. 
And I, but but I, I really don't think that this is the appropriate lesson for that. But I would like to make just a couple of brief comments about it. Some food for thought. First, committing adultery, whether by being unfaithful to a spouse or perhaps, depending on your theology, by getting a divorce and then remarrying, is in neither case an unforgivable sin. There isn't a sin that we can commit that Yeshua hasn't already paid the price for. And also please grasp that in the common meaning of the state of adultery in the Bible, it had to do primarily with a married woman living with a man that wasn't her husband. And of course that was looked down upon by society. That is, she had never obtained a legal divorce from her husband, typically because in that era it was the husband's prerogative to grant her a divorce or not. Now men, on the other hand, commonly divorced their wives for the purpose of being with another woman. That is, they just got tired of the woman they had and wanted a new one. Right? And while this was reasonably socially acceptable in those days, it certainly wasn't acceptable to God. And Yeshua spoke at length on this, trying to make that quite clear. Second, the Bible struggles greatly with, with, with divorce and remarriage. Paul goes to some length to deal with the matter, and he provides some guidelines for it. Some of which, he says, are from Christ, the remainder being his personal opinion. Yet he, and Jesus, makes it clear that the reason for even having to address this issue of divorce and remarriage is that Yehovah is well aware of the current hardness of mankind's heart. And that while he is in no way excusing divorce, he has made provisions so that we don't sin even further should our marriages go into the ditch. See, this is the context in which Paul made his famous statement about how it is better in some ways that if you can, not to be married. Because there is this conundrum that the present corrupt state of mankind in which a single person might be able, might be unable to remain celibate, yet a married person might be equally unable to remain faithful, um, doesn't work well. Right? It's due to our sin. Right? We want it to work. God says it should work. But the fact of the matter is, is that our evil inclinations lead us into making bad decisions, and single people wind up fornicating, and married people wind up in adultery. Right? Therefore, laws for divorce and remarriage were created on a practical basis. And in both cases, when we fail, okay, it affects our relationship with Jehovah, which is what Paul is primarily concerned about. I mean, the problems we face today in this regard are really no different than in Christ's day. And finally, we should see the grace of God in all this. I mean, for Pete's sake, don't think that if you're divorced and now remarried, that you're in some kind of unauthorized union, and in order to get right with God, you should end your new marriage. Okay? Was it sin that put us in that situation in the first place? Oh, yeah. 
And that is what both Christ and Paul were getting at. Because many divorcees, men in particular, back in that era, felt no remorse at all over divorce. Their thought was that under the laws of Moses, which really indicated traditions rather than biblical laws, right? there were legal procedures clearly established for couples to divorce. So, if they just kind of scrupulously followed those legal procedures, all would be fine and well with Yehovah. Wrong. If you're divorced and remarried, have you sought God's forgiveness for it and all that led to it in the first place? Okay. If you have, then accept his forgiveness and acknowledge Christ's complete payment on your behalf for that transgression and move forward with gratitude for the wonderful mercy he has shown you by giving you a new union within which now you can operate the men the way men and women were designed and meant to operate even though his intent was that we should really have never never needed another than the original. Man, that is God's love. That is also why we really need Christ. I mean, the bottom line is that while on the surface the way we typically think of adultery is as an issue of the flesh, which it most certainly is, in reality, it is also a very important spiritual issue. Now, here's that duality again, the reality of duality, okay? the physical and the spiritual existing simultaneously. And adultery revolves all around these forbidden unions. So we must be clear that this seventh commandment about adultery deals not only with human marriage relationships, but also our relationship with God. And more specifically, Yeshua to whom every believer is betrothed. Well, let's move on to the next commandment. The next one is found in um, Exodus 20, 15, and it's a very simple one. Do not steal. Pretty straightforward. So there's really not a lot of need to dwell here at the eighth word. It means exactly what it says. The Hebrew word for stealing, ganab, also carries with it the idea of stealth, of sneakiness. So the idea here is that getting something that does not rightfully belong to you by means of being sneaky or deceptive is just as much stealing as it is walking into a 7-Eleven and sticking a Twinkie in your pocket. Okay, so obviously, putting that food into your pocket is a crime. But in God's economy, obtaining something by means of deception, even if it's technically legal and therefore maybe it's not a prosecutable crime, that is also stealing in God's eyes. Now we come to the ninth word, which is, do not lie. Now, certainly, lying is part of the meaning. But this word is really written with a legal and judicial sense to it. And it speaks primarily to the idea of saying something falsely against someone in a court of law. And of course, that fits very well within the framework of the Torah, the law. That is, that all of the ancient Hebrew sages saw the Torah as being about God's justice. So the context of this word really leans much more towards being the same thing as perjury. That is, 
In a trial, if you give false answers or you accuse someone falsely, knowing full well that the accusation is not true, then it is you that is guilty. Now, just as we are to be very careful when we occasion to use God's name, we are also to be equally careful what it is we say about other people, particularly if it's negative or accusatory in nature. When we gossip or, or we accuse someone of something that we really have no first-hand knowledge of, we're in danger of violating the principle of this ninth word. The tenth word in Exodus 20, verse 17, is you shall not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, in plain language, to covet means you really want something bad. All right, that you do just about anything to get it, or that someone has it and you don't. So that makes you envious. So envious you can hardly stand it. Matter of fact, maybe even it makes you bitter. Or even more commonly, that someone has something that you don't, so it's unfair to you, because you deserve it more than they deserve it. Now, the list of items in this word that one might be tempted to covet, while completely literal, is also very much in the context of ancient Hebrew life and culture. In tribal cultures, like Israel was, the typical pagan way someone gained, which, by the way, Jehovah was trying to move Israel away from, was by taking what belonged to somebody else. Usually it was from outside your own tribe that you took something, but not necessarily. The reference to slaves or man and maidservants is mostly about property and wealth. Servants were generally purchased, or they had willingly indentured themselves to you for a period of time in order that they might, oh, pay off a family debt, or they wanted to be with you to learn a trade, or because they were so poor, it was one of the few ways they could survive. But the taking or the kidnapping of someone's wife and children and slaves was also a common pagan method of increasing your own personal power by increasing the size of your family or tribe. And by the way, don't think that this is a dead practice. Even today, in our era, we still find it occurring within the tribal cultures of Africa and Asia. Okay. The mention now of the animals in this commandment is again about wealth. Since the Israelites were primarily herdsmen, the animals represented whatever wealth they owned. The more animals you had, the wealthier you were. And you know, if you really think about it, in all fairness, to these three million wandering Hebrews out there in the wilderness, what else did they have to occupy their thoughts day and night than wanting and wanting what somebody else might have had that they didn't? I mean, they didn't pack up and wander every day. After Mount Sinai, they only moved a few more times. During their 40 years in the wilderness, they stayed several months in one spot until pasture water gave out, or by God's direction, they moved. And once they settled, There'd be an awful lot of idle hours to just sit and think. And people being people, especially as dissatisfaction of their situation would creep in, what else did they have to want out there in the barren desert other than what one of their neighbors had? Well, we're all well aware, at least we ought to be, that in a welfare society where there's much idleness, coveting what others have becomes quite a national pastime. 
Well, that completes our look at the ten words, which are the ten principles upon which God is going to base all other commands and instructions that are going to follow. So this is just the preparation for what's about to come. Let's, um, let's read now the rest of this chapter of Exodus 20 and finish it out so we can start in 21 next week. Exodus 20, chapter 15, we're going to read to the end. All the people experienced the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the shofar, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. Standing at a distance, they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we'll listen. But don't let God speak with us, or we'll die. Moshe answered the people, Don't be afraid, because God has come only to test you and make you fear him, so that you won't commit sins. So the people stood off at a distance, but Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Adonai said to Moses, Here's what you are to say to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen that I spoke with you from heaven. You're not to make with me gods of silver, nor are you to make gods of gold for yourselves. For me, you need only make an altar of earth. On it, you will sacrifice your burnt offerings, peace offerings, sheep, goats, cattle. In every place where I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. If you do not make me an altar, if you do make me an altar of stone, you're not to build it of cut stones, for if you use a tool on it, you profane it. Likewise, you're not to use steps to go up to my altar so that you won't be indecently uncovered. Oh, what a day it had been for Israel. These mind-bending physical phenomena that had been shaking the mountain, smoke billowing upwards from its summit, the thundering sound of Jehovah's voice as he presented the principles of his justice system for all of Israel to hear, and the shofar notes echoing off the valley floor. All this served to put this reverent fear of God into the people. Could it have been that just as Peter felt he could not possibly stand in the presence of God when he finally understood whom Yeshua was, so it was for the Hebrews that their legs were barely able to hold them upright long enough for them to back away from that holy mountain. So the people asked Moses to speak to God for them and for God to speak to Moses and then Moses would relay to them what God had said. And fortunately, this wasn't entirely a spiritual fear that caused them to ask Moses to intervene. And Moses instantly recognized this. And he told the people in verse 17 of our Bibles not to be afraid, for there were three reasons Jehovah had come to them in this awesome display of power and glory. First, to test or to try them, to put Israel on trial. I mean, here the Hebrew word for trial is Nassau, and it import, imparts the idea of the Hebrews as being the objects of Jehovah's justice system. Too much we get this mental picture of the phrase being tested or being put on trial as this series of challenges or obstacles that God's throwing in our path to see if we can dodge them and react to them and avoid them and then depending on how we do, we're judged. Well, that's not it at all. Um, while there are certainly at times challenges and difficulties in our lives that Jehovah allows us to contend with, that's not the primary thrust of this idea. 
Rather, it is that the Lord is steadily teaching his way of justice to his people, both how we live it and how we administer it. And the second reason is that the people should have an awe of God, not a dread of God. The idea is to have a reverence for his awesome holiness. Those that love God never need to have a horror of God, but those that do not love God most certainly should. And the third reason that the Hebrews are told is that they should learn not to sin. God, through the ten words he just gave them in this coming series of over 600 laws, is teaching the people just what his holy nature is all about, what his standard of justice and righteousness is, not just so they can develop some philosophy about life like their pagan neighbors or to make a series of religious doctrines or to have some nice intellectual discussions about it all. Rather, it was that the people he sets apart for himself do not offend, they do not transgress against the most holy one who does the setting apart according to his grace. Next, Jehovah tells Moses to remind the people, and frankly, I kind of think this was more for our benefit of future generations and not those who were standing there hearing Moses' words, that it was God himself that spoke these words and not just to Moses. All heard it. It was done very publicly so there could be no doubt that this was God's ways, God's laws, not Moses. Now, Jehovah seems once again to be addressing the matter of other gods and this issue of making images. I mean, is he just repeating himself, repeating the second commandment? I don't think so. The second word, the second commandment, certainly says no other gods, but then goes on to talk about making symbols and images and representations of him. And this fits very well with the earliest Hebrew thought on the matter. And it was confirmed in the building of the wilderness tabernacle that no images of his person did he instruct to be built, and certainly none were ever made. He goes on to institute another important principle. Yehovah is going to determine just where altars to him are to be built. An altar is not a simple monument. It is not a remembrance of a of an event. It's not a podium where someone speaks or performs. Whether of the heathen or of the godly, an altar is a place where worship of the deity takes place and sacrifice to that deity occurs. And wherever it is that God decides an altar shall be placed, there, presumably in conjunction with a proper sacrifice, there is where God will bless his people. But only there, not just any place the people should choose. And he doesn't want an altar site built in some grand fashion. Because we all understand deep down what really happens when we attempt to build fabulous edifices to Jehovah. We wind up building fabulous edifices to ourselves, our own efforts. We're so proud of our talents and gifts, our prosperity. Jehovah says here to simply pile up some dirt to sacrifice upon, to make an altar. 
And he also gives the Israelites permission to build an altar of stone if they choose, but it must be simply stacked stones, just as you pick them off from the ground. Because to take a tool to those rocks, to attempt to make them even better than it occurs naturally, in God's eyes, profanes that altar. Well, if ever there was an instruction from God that's been ignored by Hebrew and Christian alike, it must be this one. I mean, don't we build the most wonderful, fabulous cathedrals and churches and synagogues for Yehovah. We decorate them with the finest materials, do our best to keep them immaculate. Now, let's not confuse the wilderness tabernacle that would be built with expensive materials and then later on the temple, which was just a permanent version of the tabernacle, with what God's talking about here. The tabernacle was built as a teaching tool and a place where God could dwell with man. Everything about the tabernacle would have great significance, some of it even prophetic significance. It was even in some ways modeled after Jehovah's heavenly abode. But in our day, God no longer wants temples of stone and wood and gold and silver. We are his temple. Just as all he wanted here in Exodus was the dust of the ground, dirt, is the place of sacrifice, so he wants the simple dust of the ground from which we were created as the place where his spirit lives with man in our hearts. Okay. The places where we gather to have fellowship and communal worship are not modern-day equivalents of the tabernacle or the temple. God, you know, God didn't even want a permanent temple to be built. He only did it because King David was so insistent that he be allowed to, to build one. No, I think I can say unequivocally that Jehovah would rather we serve him with our obedience than by building magnificent structures. That we would use all that money and time and effort it takes to build and maintain beautiful buildings instead to feed the hungry and heal the sick and bless his people Israel and take the gospel to the world. We'll start chapter 21 of Exodus next week.